Hello everyone, welcome to the inaugural AUENV233 Dirt on Soils podcast. So this podcast is going to be a little bit different than some other podcasts. We are not going to solve a crime. We are not going to delve deep into NFL free agency. We are not going to talk at all about COVID-19. Instead, this podcast and the purpose of it is to delve into some of the material from our soils course and provide an audio companion to the PowerPoint slides that have been posted on eClass. First podcast episode is a companion to week seven, Soil Organisms and Ecology of Soil, slides one through 28. For this course topic, our learning outcomes are to understand the different categories of organisms found in the soil, be able to provide examples of those organisms, and to really understand the role and functions that these organisms play in relation to soil ecosystems. Again, some of the most important ecosystems that we really overlook on a day-to-day basis. Thinking about that biodiversity, we may want to know how many organisms there are in the soil. And one potential way to look at this is maybe look at how much mass of bacteria there is in one acre of soil. And it turns out to almost be 1,000 to 2,000 kilograms of bacteria. That's the mass of one to two cows just in that one acre of soil. Of course, some organisms are also deleterious, which basically means they cause damage to agricultural crops. And in that sense, it's important to understand the organisms in order to develop management plans in order to protect our agricultural productivity. Of course, many of soil organisms are primarily unseen and they live underground and we never interact with them. For example, on slide five, we talk about the largest living organism on Earth, which is 8,500 years old, covers nearly 10 square kilometers, and you'd never really know. So how we're going to approach the topic through these series of slides is to look at the soil biotic environment through food webs. Food webs are really key to understanding energy relationships in the soil, so this is a good slide to come back to as we introduce these different parts of the system and to always think about the function of these different organisms. This function can answer really many ecological questions. And if we look at slide seven, it shows a thin section of soil. And if we think back to earlier in the course when we talked about the soil environment, it's unique because it contains all phases, liquid, gases, solid, and organisms. Here we can see all of that happening in tandem. And it's really important to remember that this is a major reason why soils are so interesting, but also that this activity doesn't occur everywhere, but rather in hot spots where you have a lot of organic matter and organic activity taking place, you're going to get that entire soil hierarchy and food web happening all at once. Soil organisms are represented by all kingdoms of life. In terms of animalia, worms, nematodes, arthropods, these are all multicellular organisms and they're heterotrophs, which means they consume other individuals for their food and energy. We have plants, such as mosses and vascular plants, which are rooting in the soil. These are multicellular and autotrophic, which means they create their own food. We have fungi, in terms of lichens, which represent a mutualistic association between fungi and algae. We have mycorrhiza, which are also mutualistic. And most of these fungi are all heterotrophs as well. Additionally, we have single-cell eukaryotes like protista, um, amoebas, slime molds. We have bacterias, cyanobacterias. These all have no nucleus, so they represent bacteria. And then archaea, which are prokaryotes, no cellular nucleus, no organelles, and they're 
many are extremophiles, so they live in the most extreme environments on the planet. So before we delve too much into function, slide 11 gives a really good look at the relative numbers of these soil organisms. And the figure is really nice because it relates it back to the sizes of different particles we've always already talked about, so clay, silt, sand. And what we can see is that the smaller organisms, viruses, archaea, bacteria, are about the size of clay particles, whereas bigger um, organisms, protozoa, nematodes, arthropods, earthworms, vertebrates, are more on the side of sand particles. And although earlier we talked about total mass, it's just in numbers of bacteria in a gram of soil. Our table here on slide 11 shows a little bit more that these are really huge numbers. In terms of bacteria, we're talking about a billion different bacterial cells in one, um, one gram of soil, which is about one-fifth of a teaspoon of soil. And in terms of nematodes, we might find 10 to 50 nematodes in that same amount of soil. So really large numbers. There's Soil is teeming with life, and it's really important to understand that. So the organization of this lecture takes place around slide 12, which splits all of these different organisms into different groupings, microflora, microfauna, mesofauna, and macrofauna. We're going to start the biggest and work our way down. And the macrofauna and mesofauna really are all about promoting humification. And so what's humification? Humification is all about changes in organic matter over time. Remember, we're trying to create humus, which is a dark colored, stable form of organic matter. And that's when most things have decomposed and you can't really recognize anything anymore. And this is really important for soil carbon, which we'll get into in a couple of lectures. So our first soil grouping is the macro and megafauna. And these are greater than two millimeters in size uh, and upwards. And the first organisms I want to highlight are plants. And obviously we interact with plants in many ways in our daily lives, but the thing that we don't interact with as much are the roots. And the roots represent between 20 to 80% of the total plant mass. And uh, this is primarily coarse, fine root hairs that we don't even see when we pull something out by the roots. A mature tree, for example, may have over 5 million root tips. What's really important about plants is that they're a source of organic matter. So we can have root turnover underground, we can have above ground mortality, obviously plants will break down over time and form into humus and soil. We can have root exudation, and in that rhizosphere, the area around these roots is really where this hot spot of microbial activity is. It's more acidic um, due to these plant roots exuding hydrogen ions, which creates a more acidic soil. And this rhizosphere represents a hot spot of microbial activity. It's only about a millimeter wide, but when you think about the number of root tips and the number of root areas that we have, that's why we have so much microbial activity in the soil. When we think about macrofauna, then we're talking about rodents, worms, insects, really burrowing organisms that represent ecosystem engineers. And so here we have ground squirrels, not the traditional gophers, um, but these are really Keystone species in some semi-arid grassland systems, they have a major influence on biodiversity because they create these networks underground. It helps to aerate soils, recycle nutrients. They can eat plant material though, so farmers often consider them pests. But oftentimes, in an ecosystem perspective, they are actually really important. Other macrofauna include spiders and beetles. 
Uh, for beetles, adults are usually above ground, but their larval stage is often completely in the soil in terms of in the form of grubs. We have termites, ants, earthworms, many others as well. One of these macrofauna are termites. These are largely tropical insects, and they're capable of digesting wood with the help of symbionts, which are in their in their guts. And they really are earth movers. They compact soil. They reduce nutrient availability. They create huge galleries, which are fantastically impressive. And when speaking about insects eating wood, we may be familiar with carpenter ants, which are more common in northern ecosystems and ants in general are as well um, and that ants as well as termites work on soil redistribution these huge galleries underground they're moving earth to the surface um, ants also act as predators on microinvertebrates so smaller uh, insects and really working on that transfer of energy and that soil ecosystem soil web of life and they also work to fragment litter so they'll cut up leaves Leaf cutter ants do this, but also all um, ants will fragment litter and take it below ground as nesting material. And finally, we move into earthworms. These are the most important of the soil fauna, and we read a lot more about them and their potential invasiveness in our third synopsis. Most of the invasion is through the Lumbricidae um, groups which are European in origin, but they're now naturalized in North America. So in Canada, we don't really have any native earthworms because of the glaciations, which would have ripped all the topsoil off and extirpated basically all native earthworms. Um, and Lumbricidae represents a group with over 670 species in it in North America. Interestingly, there are other groups of worms that are not as common. One is the Megoscolicidae, which are natives under threat, usually found in the tropics. Um, and earthworms are interesting because you can group them based on their habits. So where they live, in the litter, topsoil or subsoil, what they feed on primarily. And of course, they're key for breaking down animal and plant residues as anyone with a vermicomposter or with just a compost pile in the backyard and seeing worms underneath that and working on that vegetative material. Slide 22 represents a table um, which shows the ecological groupings of different earthworm species. And it's really important to understand the difference between a litter species, the epigeics, the topsoil species, the anaeics, and the subsoil species, the endogeics. So in terms of the epigeics, these are worms that uh, usually live within the litter. They break it down, but they don't really mix it in. They just break down the litter into smaller and smaller pieces. They don't have burrows, um, and they really don't eat much soil, just decomposing litter. Whereas the topsoil species, the anaeics, have permanent openings to the surface. Um, they're kind of like these red worms. They're shallow, but mostly horizontal burrows. So they don't really go very deep in the soil. They help to decompose. They collect that litter from above, draw it into their burrows, and then they ingest some soil along with it. The endogeics are really extensive, uh, large worms that live deep permanent burrows. Uh, they're constantly extending those burrows deeper as well. And these worms ingest soil with organic matter, um, which helps with that casting of gluing together soil through exudation on the other end, um, and really help to create these large structures of soil that are so important that we learned about earlier in this in the course. Slide 23 points out what many of these different worm species look like 
This is in your textbook and also shows the what casts might look like on the surface. And casts, of course, are important because they represent soil aggregates, which we talked about earlier. And so not just individual soil components, but helping to create some more of that soil structure in terms of preserving pore space, water flow, air flow, etc. And this is a reason why earthworms are so important to soil health. And we go into this more in slide 25, where we talk about bioturbation. This is about biological organisms moving soil. And that movement of soil really, in terms of earthworm casts, increases aggregate stability. And with the clumping of soil minerals, it actually reduces reactivity because it reduces that surface area. It alters microbial biomass. And the pie chart in the bottom right reveals nitrogen distribution in the ecosystem in a system with earthworms and without earthworms. So with no earthworms, we see that a lot of nitrogen is tied up into the litter of plants, a little bit in the soil, um, some losses gas. But with earthworms, look at the huge amount of nitrogen that's freed from litter. And it's available in the soil, increased, a huge amount increase in the soil, more available for plants, some in the earthworms themselves, but then there's a lot that's lost as gas. And so this is kind of the offset where we promote that organic matter incorporation. We free up nutrients for plants and increase nutrient cycling, but we can also promote increased emissions of carbon dioxide and nitrogen oxide from soils with earthworm activity. And what we know about earthworms is that they're very sensitive to management. So an example on slide 26 talks about a study, a long-term study from 1975 to 1998, where they had grasslands that were then afforested. So we planted trees and uh, looked for plantations on top of it. And in that grassland area, they had a baseline study and they found between 547 to 365 uh, individual worms per meter squared. But in the forest, um, in high density forest plantings and forest use, we went from 336 individuals per meter squared to zero in only 11 years. And in low density, even so with less management, less activity, we went down to zero in 23 years. So this management practice actually ended up extirpating earthworms and changing that ecosystem. However, there can also be negative impacts on ecosystems where these earthworms were not present. And across the world, what we've seen is that the diversity of forest ecosystems declines when you introduce earthworms. And usually that's due to understory plants, where with no earthworms, there'd be a ton of understory plants, as you can see in the slide. Ecosystem with earthworms is completely just litter. And the reason this happens is that, that conversion to, to humus. It's a good thing if you're growing a garden, but a natural forest, it causes a very fast release of those nutrients instead of allowing the leaf litter to break down more slowly. Additionally, as those earthworms burrow, they disrupt that symbiotic relationship between fungi and plants. And some deep burrowing worm species can change the pH of upper soil by mixing in soil from deeper layers. Drainage of rainwater, drying the soil faster. So earthworms do present a large change to ecosystems, and it's not necessarily always positive. Where we do think of earthworms as positive is often in our backyard gardens and in conventional agriculture, where earthworms are responsible for breaking down that organic matter and really releasing nutrients, like we said, to make them plant available or to microbes that make them plant available. And so the last slide, 
today, number 28, talks about the impact of tillage on earthworm populations. And so a couple of studies have looked at it under no-till management and conventional tillage, and results showed that disturbing the soil less significantly increased earthworm abundance. And that makes sense because it would disturb uh, less burrows um, and it would leave more biomass available as a food source for those worms. That brings us to the end of our first episode of AUENV233 podcast, The Dirt on Soils. I hope this is a welcome addition to our remote learning and an ability for you to have an audio guide to the slides um, and give you a little bit of additional information as you work through this material. Uh, I'm always available via email. And again, we do have office hours virtually Mondays and Fridays from 8.30 to 9.30. Uh, those links are all on eClass. Um, and please reach out if you have any questions.